This episode of The Protocol is sponsored by the Algorand Foundation. Dive deep into the blockchain realm with The Protocol Podcast with Coindesk founding editor of The Protocol newsletter, Brad Count, and tech journalists, Sam Kessler and Margot Nykirk. They unravel the intricate technologies powering cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum, one block at a time. Just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Hello and welcome to the Protocol Podcast. I'm Brad Count here with my co-host Margot Nykirk and Sam Kessler. Let's dive right into it, as we say, with the latest news and developments in technology behind crypto and blockchains. In our first segment, we will be talking about Margot's cool feature just out today on a cybersecurity expert at the Ethereum Foundation who works on a team there who literally they just spend their entire day trying to hack the network, trying to break it before anybody else does. Margot, tell us about this amazing, cool feature. Yeah. So the feature is about a security researcher at the Ethereum Foundation. His name is David Theodore. Basically had a couple conversations about him and what he does at Ethereum. And as you mentioned, his job is basically just to find vulnerabilities in the blockchain and hack it and identify it before any bad actors can get to it. And he's one of a member of team of like about 10 people. And they all come from like a cybersecurity or an info security background. They've all worked at like big tech firms or the defense industry where they've led like offensive cybersecurity units. So they know sort of all the tricks of what bad actors might be looking for. And so now they get to play the other side of this where they do the defensive, where they make sure that the blockchain is up and running, that there are no critical malfunctions in the blockchain. So the Ethereum Foundation is very central to the Ethereum ecosystem. It was created by Vitalik Buterin, along with a bunch of other well-known people in the Ethereum ecosystem. But basically, they do a lot of research and help support a lot of like network upgrades that go on um, in Ethereum. And so they employ a bunch of developers to work on teams to sort of improve the blockchain. And for instance, they were very central in, in coming up with the coding and the tooling for the merge. But they're not, let's say, like the ones that are necessarily responsible for Ethereum. They're just sort of a big player in this ecosystem to help maintain and improve and move the blockchain along as it matures. All right. Well, this team, you know, what are the kinds of things that they're doing all day? Yeah, they're different from some of the other teams that they're different teams at the EF. And these guys specifically, their whole job is just to hack the blockchain and, and find these bad functions so that they can patch it. There's a technique that they like to use, which is kind of like a cute word. It's called fuzzing. Basically, what it means from a high level, again, I'm no like cybersec expert, but supposedly they put in invalid inputs into the system, and that's how they're able to detect vulnerabilities. So David sits around all day, and as he told me, he just fuzzes. He fuzzes all day, every day, even when he goes to sleep. They just fuzzing his life in that team. <laughs> and Margo, you had this really colorful detail in there about he works sometimes from a, a, an Airstream like recreational vehicle. How does he manage to do that? Yeah, well, he's based in Texas most of the time. But he does have an, a love for the outdoors. And so he has an Airstream and him and his fiance or his partner go around to the different national parks. And because he's able to connect to Starlink, he's able to keep fuzzing from wherever he wants to fuzz. 
there's a tweet inside the the article showing where he set up right before the merge. He was fuzzing in a national park. And then he used the Airstream to meet up with some of the other EF folks before the merge in Colorado. So yeah, you can fuzz everywhere as long as you're connected to Starlink, supposedly. That is so fascinating. I mean, it feels like it's part of the crypto industry where so many people are working remotely. And I mean, I personally know that from my own setup, I need to have everything in the right place. I know a lot of people do, but it could be that, uh, you know, some people just take advantage of it. They're just all over the place all the time, right? Yeah. I mean, I think even us, right? We're all in different places. And and like the EF also specifically, I think everyone is sort of, everyone I talk to is always somewhere around the, in a different place around the world. So so like, uh, Margo, I'm curious, so th- there's the core Ethereum protocol, which is most of what, you know, this group at the Ethereum Foundation sounds like they focus on and this guy that you interviewed. But then there's all the smart contracts that are built atop Ethereum. And those are, of course, like the bugs and the exploits and the hacks that we mostly hear about. Ethereum mm-hmm. itself famously mm-hmm. has not been, you know, the, the victim of any massive hack, unless you consider like the DAO exploit from years and years ago to be mm-hmm. a hack. Anyway, that's like a whole rabbit hole mm-hmm. that we can go down later. But anyway, okay, so there's kind of like two things that I guess we usually talk about when we're discussing bugs on Ethereum. There's bugs or the potential for bugs on Ethereum, the protocol itself. And it sounds like that's what this team that you reported on focuses on, Margo. And then there's all the bugs that we usually hear about, the hacks, the exploits, the, you know, all, all of the other shenanigans that we hear about on the news happening on the apps built atop Ethereum and the smart contracts that programmers around the world deploy onto blockchain network. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, whether you, over the course of your reporting, got into any discussions with the Ethereum Foundation about that kind of like second order of attack on smart contracts? Or is that not really in their their sort of purview? Yeah, that's not really in their wheelhouse. I would say everything is more of a focus on uh, the protocol level. He did mention that there were some critical vulnerabilities that they found um, for CL and EL clients, but uh, CL being consensus layer, consensus layer, and, and EL being execution layer. Sorry, the yeah, two layers that. That, that Ethereum. Yes, kind of correct. Yeah, a lot of it is just focused on the core protocol. I think also it would just be it's a it's a lot of work probably to maintain, as he said, they view themselves as like the guardians of the blockchain, like the ultimate people who are keeping the blockchain running. Originally, his position was to make sure that Ethereum wouldn't be hacked during the merge. And so that's where his research originally like led him to. But now it's maintaining that it's live and that no one's going to hack the system either, since there is so much built on top of it. But that's another interesting maybe feature to write about at some point. That's really fascinating, Margo. Thank you for uh, that great feature, which was the feature of the protocol newsletter. Just put in a little plug there uh, for this week. And with that, go to our next topic. We're going to talk about Bitcoin tech developments. And, you know, this is just a little piece that I wrote for the protocol newsletter this week. And the big idea here is there's suddenly everybody's talking about Bitcoin. It's in the mainstream press. I'm getting the Bloomberg daily market wrap and, you know, Wall Street Journal. Everybody's writing about Bitcoin because the price is mooning, which is what always happens. You know, it's just the market stuff that gets everybody excited. 
You know, there's a lot going on on the Bitcoin tech side. And one thing that I think is interesting is Bitcoin is way, way, in some ways harder to understand than the Ethereum stuff, in my opinion, just because, you know, they are super hardcore coders and they're very demanding that you get it right. It's kind of hard to get in there, but at any rate, the latest development is uh, Taproot Assets, which just was released by Lightning Labs. Uh, Brian Gentry put out a blog post about it. He's their head of business development. And the big idea is it will provide a way of basically having you know tokens on top of the Lightning Network. And I was just reading his blog post again the other day. They are really seeing Lightning, especially as a tool, something that's increasingly getting adoption in, in emerging markets where they tend to have less stable currencies, you know, or people can't trust their government or there's lots of inflation and people want, they want something. They're used to dollars. And so they could basically have stable coins on Lightning Network with the Taproot assets. That's kind of the big innovation. I don't know. What do y'all think about this? I mean, there's always been this sort of like cultural divide on Bitcoin, right, between the people who want to keep it as this super, super pure payments protocol and, you know, think everything else like you see on Ethereum with smart contracts and NFTs and DeFi is kind of sacrilegious. But then there's the folks who will say that they're kind of more realistic about things, right? And they're, they're like, hey, this is what the people want. Give them their smart contracts, give them their NFTs, ordinals. I wonder, Brad, over the course of your reporting, whether you've kind of figured out whether that that narrative has evolved or changed in any way. Are people just like not as up in arms about these new things like they used to be? You know, I did. They do have the Austin uh, Bit Devs meetup that I try to go to once a month, but it was last week and I missed it. I'm sure there was a lot of talk about it. Ryan Gentry is part of that group. But I was looking at actually the replies to the tweet that Ryan Gentry put out announcing the thing when it came out late last week. And there was not a total, there was not a ton of negativity on that tweet. I don't know if, you know, they're seen as part of the community. So maybe they're less inclined to throw shade at that the way maybe they have in some of the other projects that are kind of, you know, maybe less connected from in terms of the people who work there. I don't know, Margaret, what do you think? Yeah, I think sort of what Sam was alluding to. I mean, on the one hand, it's interesting to see how this culture has evolved almost maybe, but on the other hand, like it's almost silly, right? Like stable coins already exist on on other blockchains. And it's like, this is Bitcoin we're talking about, right? Like OG. And they're just now also introducing tokens, stable coins, BitVM we talked about like a few weeks ago, right? Smart contracts, as you were saying, and NFTs. I mean, it's, it's funny to sort of hear that uh, happen. I wonder, Brad, if you think this is something like that we need to keep looking out for. Like what else is there to come to Bitcoin? Have you heard of anything that is still missing? Well, Bitcoin dominance has really increased this year. Bitcoin, despite that we write a lot about Ethereum and and in the crypto industry that they're definitely the ones to watch, you know, Bitcoin outside of crypto, Bitcoin's the only one that really anybody knows. And so it does have that first mover advantage, especially in terms of the brand. 
I think one thing you can say, one of the takeaways from ordinals and, you know, taproot assets, ordinals was the thing that brought NFTs earlier this year. And then there was just this bit VM paper that we wrote about a couple of weeks ago, Robin Linus, uh, and I was the author of that paper and that was bringing smart contracts to Bitcoin. I mean, what we're seeing is Bitcoin is capable of this stuff. You know, there's probably different advantages to the various blockchains. It could be that ultimately one of the Ethereum or the Ethereum layer twos is going to be the cheapest or fastest or some all L1. You know, you're always reading about these new faster, cheaper blockchains. And Bitcoin is the most secure, they say, uh, because it's, you know, supposedly because has all this hash power, but it's also, you know, using up a lot of electricity. You know, also, you know, people like the, the this proof of stake model on Ethereum because they earn yield. You know, it's sort of a different type. It's like a commodity versus a financial and Bitcoin versus Ethereum on how the consensus system works. So what it does show is there's lots of people who are building on Bitcoin. All right. Well, we can probably wrap up that section. When we come back, we're going to take a deep dive into some of the developments on Polygon over the past uh, week or so. Ready to create the next Web3 unicorn? Go from concept to fully functioning dApp with AlgoKit. The all-in-one development package helps you get building on Algorand in less than 10 minutes. Let Algorand's advanced blockchain technology, lightning-fast transaction speeds, and instant finality be the rails for your next world-class project. Head over to developer.algorand.org slash AlgoKit to download today. All right, welcome back. We're going to jump right into our Protocol Village segment. And this week, the state of Polygon. Now, Margo, you are our real Polygon expert here, talking to them all the time about everything that they're doing. And I feel like you should lead this uh, this segment. What what is what are what should we be talking about today? With yeah, Polygon? well, there's always a lot going on with Polygon, so it's kind of hard to choose. But maybe let's work our way backwards today, Wednesday. Polygon deployed the Pole smart contract on the Ethereum mainnet. This is part of their Polygon 2.0 rebrand, where they're basically adding a bunch of upgrades to the network. They're making their Polygon POS chain ZK compatible. They're focusing efforts on decentralization and governance. And this is part of one of their pillars where they're changing the token from Matic to Paul for the Paul P-O-L. For those who don't know, Polygon used to be referred to as the Matic Network. So this is, I think, sort of part of a rebrand for Polygon's next iteration. And yeah, so basically Matic holders will be able to send their Matic tokens into this whole smart contract and in return receive the same amount of uh, pull tokens, which then can be used on any of the different chains that Polygon deploys. So the main POS chain, the ZK rollup, the supernets. Yeah. So this is like one of the main developments that has happened today. So is the this Paul token, I mean, currently the Matic token is like the native yes. token yes. of the Polygon POS. Is that right? Matic is, is native to 
all. Yeah, it's an ERC20. I think it's native to all of them. All of what? All the blockchains, the POS blockchain, the ZK EVM. Oh, gotcha. Yes, Matic is the native token to the Polygon network. And this is the Pol token will be serving the exact same purpose. I think they're trying to unify everything under this Polygon household, especially as there are different chains now becoming available for different uses. And so they want to improve the name of the token or make it more aligned. Well, yeah, the token was still called Matic. So it's kind of like a vestige of a before time. Yeah. Um, So I guess it does make some sense that they would try to switch the naming over as they, you know, this new era for for the ecosystem. Polygon, you know, they are aggressive both on the tech and trying to really move into the ZK area, but also on the marketing. Oh, yeah. (laughs) They are so, they're aggressive on both of those. I mean, I give them credit for it. Everyone I speak to sort of always, when, when I talk to the different layer two teams and you, sometimes you have to bring up their competitors, right? Just to sort of see how, how they feel about them. But everyone will always say they have the best BD team in the whole Polygon, <laughs> in the whole blockchain ecosystem, that their business development is top notch. And so, yeah, this is maybe part of that marketing effort to sort of have their brand recognized I think too, like that whole BD thing was always a little bit of a backhanded compliment. Oh, for sure. At Polygon. For sure. Yeah, where, but there's where some these, meaning to it, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like all these layer twos used to say that layer two, you know, networks like Arbitrum, Optimism used to say that Polygon wasn't the real deal because right. they hadn't had their own separate chain. That's it was basically like a side chain. It had its own consensus mechanism to secure itself. Um, but, you know, Polygon was changing that with its new ZK move. But I guess this is them kind of trying to confront some of those earlier criticisms. Margo, like we could also kind of talk a little bit about how Polygon recently has kind of seen the narrative shift a little bit around it. Not only internally has it had some problems with layoffs and, and so on, but broadly, when, when you hear the conversation about Polygon, things are, it, it doesn't seem quite as inevitable as it used to. It used to be kind of this juggernaut and people thought Polygon would be the one to beat even compared to some of these newer layer two platforms since they were developing their own similar technology. But now that narrative seems to be changing. You mentioned recently that this Lido proposal to get off of, of Polygon. Can you talk a little bit about that and what that might say about Polygon? Yeah. Well, Lido was proposing to move off of Solana as part of that is also moving off of Polygon and focusing their efforts on Ethereum. And as we've discussed sort of in the past, like they are sort of critical and cause a lot of headaches for the Ethereum ecosystem. So it is interesting that that to see that there are other participants in this wider blockchain ecosystem mm-hmm. that are moving away from Polygon. I will say, though, I have to disagree with you still a little bit that business development efforts, I think, still are progressing because we're seeing that in the ZK stack that they have pitched. You know, we saw with Celo, we talk, we've talked about this before, that it was supposed to be on OP stack. Then Polygon came in and said, hey, we have a stack, like, please come to us. Now, you know, a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. Manta also ditched the OP stack and chose Polygon. So I will say, like, it is not as secure in terms of when it comes to Lido, but that's not to say that they're still pushing forward in their efforts to get more users to get into its ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, one of the big pieces of their BD strategy in the past was working with established, you know, Web2 or, you know, legacy uh, companies, um, brands like like Starbucks, for instance. And there's a question as to, you know, how organic those partnerships were. You know, you, you hear a lot of rumors about, you know, maybe Polygon directly paid for some of those shifts onto their brands to launch onto their platform. And, 
you know, one of the things we'll probably be curious to see moving forward is now that we're not in this like kind of like low interest rate heyday that we were two years ago, are companies like Polygon, Polygon Labs that builds Polygon going to be able to afford to embark on all of these BD efforts that they were able to pretty easily uh, uh, absorb a year or two ago? Will that have any appreciable impact on their viability as like a business or an ecosystem? Because you might find like whether or not these BD efforts are you know, moving along, how much they matter for attracting users is a different story. Are people really going to be converted into users of the network just because they're using some brand promotion? Yeah. Those are really good questions from my conversations, mostly with Polygon. I think that they're heavily betting on ZK to get these users into their ecosystem because they just fully believe that ZK is going to be the future when it comes to blockchain. And then this ties back into what we were talking about in the beginning about the Polygon 2.0 roadmap that one of their proposals besides changing this token name is to make the Polygon main chain into a ZK chain in addition to their ZK rollup. So this is all really, I think, yeah, Polygon's an interesting network. I mean, to just, think to about. Sh- just to throw in there, here we are, the tech team, but you know, the world turns on sales. I'm just going to say, you know, <laughs> I mean, it, it, there's a reason that salespeople get paid a lot of money to sell things, you know, it's because, at the end of the day, you got to talk with people and cut deals and get in, you know, get in front of the right person, work the system to make things happen. And, you know, there's there's a lot of layer twos out there. There's a lot of layer ones out there. There's a lot of ZK rollups out there. There's obviously technical differences between all of these and pros and cons, but at the end of the day, it's going to be people who get out there and, and make make stuff happen, you know, who are going to make the difference. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think like, yes, I agree. But I also like do want to give them some credit that they, they you know, have spent a lot of time researching and investing in ZK and that they have yeah. some really good people on their team who are experts in that subject matter. So. Well- Speaking of that, you wrote this story last week, Margo, about their council and that they set up, they want to take a baby step towards decentralization by creating this council of people. And Jordi Bailina, who's really their ZK honcho over there, is is on that council. I thought that was kind of telling. Yeah. Yeah. They have some really interesting representation on that. Um, some people from the Ethereum Foundation, some people from Coinbase, I believe. Justin Drake from the Ethereum Foundation. Right, right. Um, Victor Boonin from Coinbase. Yeah, there's a few people from Polygon, also some independent people. It's an interesting mix of people. It'd be interesting to see sort of what they'll be tasked with. Uh, This is still like a proposal at the moment. Yeah, they're supposed to sort of help guide the blockchain towards more decentralization. All Um, right. Well, with that, let's wrap it up. Thank you so much for listening to the Protocol podcast. Big shout out to Michelle Musso, our producer behind the scenes, who's helping us out every second here. Even when you can't tell, she's got her her influence back there, making it happen, making us sound smart. You can listen to us weekly on Coindesk Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please subscribe to our weekly newsletter, The Protocol, on Coindesk.com. See you next week. 